Uh, we now draw to an end our series in Matthew with a pretty central question. Uh, what happens when you die? In Ecclesiastes it says that uh, one of the core's the core approaches to wisdom is to live this life on the basis that you're not going to be here forever. To understand that there is going to be a sunrise that you will not see. And it's actually important to live your life on that basis and know how each moment you have is actually a gift and to, and to spend it well. Now, already in Matthew, we've spent some time looking at this incredible future, the end of the story that we don't talk enough about. And the end of the story isn't you dying. The end of the story we see uh, in the book of Isaiah, we see it referenced right the way through the New Testament, but we see it clearly happening in the last two chapters of Revelation as instead of everybody going to heaven, heaven comes to earth. And there is a, a new physical reality where we are able to, all the barriers that hold us back are removed, we're able to engage with Jesus face to face and there is no more pain, there is no more crying. It's going to be fantastic, isn't it? But as we said, okay, what are the, what are the questions you're left with from the book of Matthew? Uh, the, a central question has come back from a few places in a few different ways is, yeah, but what happens between here and there? You know, what happens when I actually die? Where do I go? Uh, and, and I think that question has been brought obviously more into focus this last week as we've already heard there was a question on one of our little kids' minds when they're asking Tim what to speak about. Uh, and uh, it is a question that's brought into focus as we reflect on the Queen's life and what it's been. But also for each of us. Uh, as I stand here, there are faces, faces and relationships that I can't engage with in the same way because the people aren't here anymore. People who've been part of Citywide's life, people like my mate Phil, uh, people uh, like uh, I, I, was, I was so grateful for the way Brian Marsh would just turn up and be part of things at Alina Valley. So many people who are no longer with us. My, my grandfather, who I miss. My mate, my mate Bob Adams, who I miss. Matthew, who was a young fellow we worked with in uh, the housing service we, we lived in Victoria, uh, who died of a, a drug overdose because there was a dealer who wanted to make a profit and didn't care about people. And I'm, anyway, I don't know, for you, as you think of n names and people, so that obviously focuses the, focus the question, what happens when you die? Well, there's a lot we can't say, but what we can say is let's look at what the Bible says. So I encourage you to pull your Bibles out. and We actually can do a bit of a Bible study on what happens when you die. Uh, where we're going to start is usually a good place to start in the Bible. It's with Jesus. Uh, and there's a lot of people who have a, a lot of theories about how it works. But the, the central story of the Christian faith is the story of the cross. 
And one of the stories of the Christian faith at the centre of the cross is the story of the two thieves. And one of the things that emerges very quickly is that uh, there was a, a thief who, who said... Uh, to, who, who acknowledged who Jesus was. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response to him was, truly I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. So very clearly what the text is indicating is that Jesus is assuming that in a few hours' time, he and the thief will be together in a place he calls paradise. That's what the text is assuming. Now, there is one of the, this is not a, a new thing. There is a, the, the central picture we have uh, through the New Testament is that after we die, those who call out to Jesus are with Jesus somehow. Romans 10.13 that says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no, no exceptions there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a, a verse that was repeated in the book of Acts. But you'll notice it does say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. What is inherent in that uh, is a power relationship. Uh, that for Jesus to be Lord means that you submit to him. If you're, calling on, if you're calling out for a mascot, if you're calling out for somebody just to make you feel good, uh, that's a different kind of thing. If you're looking to say one thing with your mouth and live something else with your life, Jesus uh, used the word for that, that was the word hypocrite. And, and one of the things we've got to watch uh, when it comes to... Uh, thinking about what happens when we die is, is I reckon there's a, an unhealthy way that we can kind of just try and get the, get the insurance policy in place. Uh, and that's that, that very clearly in the Bible, that's not encouraged. But everyone who does call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And uh, it is clear uh, Jesus speaks directly to the Sadducees who believed there was no resurrection from the dead. And he says, don't you get it in, in Matthew 22 about the resurrection of the dead? Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Why, why is he saying Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Well, he's saying them in present tense. He's not saying that in past tense. What Jesus is inferring from that Old Testament text is that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still somehow alive. And he's using that to point out to the Pharisees, you guys don't get it. These guys are still alive. In fact, Jesus himself has a conversation with Moses and Elijah uh, in Matthew 17.3, in the Transfiguration. Uh, and so it's clear that people who have passed away are still somehow alive. And I, there's a picture I have, it's been a, often when I'm doing a funeral, it's a picture I use because it's a picture that speaks to me from the picture that Pete read earlier when he was reflecting on his uh, journey, the, the picture in, in Hebrews. 
there's this, I, I picture the MCG, which is kind of, a, I was watching the SCG last night, and uh, for all those Collingwood fans, Ian, uh, I just want to say we're all grateful they lost. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. That's, that's a tangent that's unhelpful. Um, uh, where were we? Uh, SCG. MC, M, there's this picture in Hebrews. This picture of the, a big grandstand. And for me, Phil's there in the grandstand. My grandfather's there in the grandstand. And it says, and if you bring to mind the people who have passed on, who have been important to you, it's, there's this picture of since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off all the stuff that holds us back. So once like this picture that uh, they've had their go, they've, they've run their race, and now it's your time, this is your race, and they're watching, they're cheering you on. At some point, it'll be your turn to cheer people on. But this side of eternity... You're still on the racetrack, is the kind of the picture we have. And it, it's also clear that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was looking forward to what ha- would happen when he died. He actually says in Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm to, to go on living in this body, this will mean, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for me that I, I remain in the body. Now, some, some people would, wanna, would, would think, and, the, and, the, and they've got Bible verses to back this up, that, that what happens when you die is you fall asleep and then you wake up and you're at, at what they, the bio, you're at the end of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I, I, I don't think, as, as I look at the, the evidence from Paul and from the, the story of the transfiguration, from what Jesus teaches, I, I, my sense is that somehow we are with Jesus in heaven and Jesus, when Jesus returns, it's going to be fantastic, could happen any day now, could still be in a thousand years' time. Who knows? When he, when, he, when he returns, he's going to bring with him all those who have fallen asleep in him. In fact, that's what it says in 1 Thessalonians. All those, and the, and the, the term fallen asleep is a, is a metaphor. It's, a, it's the language that's used for passed away. There's this sense that the Christians use that because they wanted to say that death isn't final. And that there's going to be another point where we meet together. That's why they use the language of fallen asleep. And then you'll see in Thessalonians, it says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want, to, want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will, see what it says, bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So somehow those who have passed away before Jesus returns are brought with Jesus. Now, that's all well and good, but one of the very specific questions was, yeah, but what about the people who don't call on the name of the Lord? Yeah, where do they go? How does that work? 
And, I, you know, it's not, a, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but let's talk about it. Let's see what the Bible says. What is clear, right the way through, is that there is going to be a point of judgment. As we learnt last week about sheep and goats, there's going to be a dividing line moment. Acts 10 says that God has appointed Jesus as judge of the living and the dead and that all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So that, so that what, in the book of Acts there, as Peter talks to Cornelius, these Gentiles, and they're trying to get their head around what it all work, means, uh, Peter is saying the dividing line is Jesus. But there is going to be a judgment. Um, and there is, in the Christian church over the last 2,000 years, there's been debate about what all that means. It's clear that for many people, our picture of what hell is has been more influenced by uh, books like Dante's Inferno and a whole lot of other things. Uh, actually, when the Bible uses the word hell, the, the, the word Gehenna refers actually to a rubbish dump just outside Jerusalem, and it's, it's, it's a clear metaphor for a, a pretty awful kind of place where there was a fire continually burning and bodies were continually being burned. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for a place that they would recognise, but it is, it is clear that there's, there's some kind of place that is not with God. And there have been basically three main schools of thought in the Christian church over the years. Some people believe that those who die and, and that they're separated from God, who, because God is the source of all life, and if they're separated from that source of all life, then they simply would cease to exist. That's, there, would, there would be some people who would think that. I, I think it, it is, that's a hard one to sustain based on the reading of the Bible, but there, there are certainly some people who would believe that. Um, some people believe uh, that those who are separated from Jesus will, will always have the option to come back, that that, that option will never be taken away. Uh, and depending on how they frame it and how it works, basically the picture is that God's love will actually triumph over his justice. Uh, and a pastor called Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, basically saying that, uh, and uh, got a, a lot of blowback from that. Uh, and then the third position is uh, they use a technical, they use this as a technical term, but it doesn't sound like a very nice technical term. They say that some people, that people who die separated from Jesus exist in an eternal and conscious torment. They try and use those language, that language technically. I think what is clear in the Bible that there is a point of separation and that those who die with Jesus as Lord, spend time with Jesus, and go to be with Jesus, and then there is a division. How do you make sense of that, though? How does a loving God do that? Uh, one of the people that's helped me to make sense of that is a guy, C.S. Lewis. Uh, the book, The Problem of Pain, is worth reading. And he says this, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, 
successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside, not on the outside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they've demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. C.S. Lewis writes, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he's done so already at Calvary. What else do you want of them? To forgive them? They will not let themselves be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, Lewis writes, I'm afraid that is what he does. And so it is not a a light thing. But there is this central truth in our faith. The more you let yourself submit to Jesus as Lord, the freer you will become. But the more you try and grasp your own freedom, you can reflect on your own life and you know this is true. The more you try and grasp your own freedom separate to God, the more you know you become enslaved to the things you're grasping for. Isn't that true? And that ultimately heaven and hell is the extrapolation of that reality we know too well already. And ultimately, for each one of us, what does all this mean? It means we really should be concerned about keeping ourselves in right relationship with God. We should. But we need to then also then entrust those people we love into the hands of a God who loves them far more than you could ever love them. We need to release them into his hands, trusting that ultimately it is true. He will never stop loving them. And we don't fully, as as you're probably picking up, we don't fully understand how it's all going to work. But we do know that God loves each person on the face of the planet. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen to this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn 
but to save the world through him. The danger about focusing too much on what happens when we die is that faith becomes this thing about fear. And that's just not a healthy place to live from. Our faith is meant to be a loving response to a God who loves us. Not a fearful insurance policy for what might happen when we die. And the more it becomes that, the more you can relax. But if you are looking for a God who's a mascot and not Lord, I would encourage you to second think. I would encourage you to reflect a bit and ask yourself, is that God mascot off on the edge of my life while I actually do what I feel like doing? Is, that, is this the kind of life I want? Isn't there part of me that knows Jesus was right when he said, those who prepare to give up their lives for my sake actually find their life? Isn't there part of me that knows as I look back on my own life, the times I've tried to set my own agenda, it hasn't produced healing and health, it hasn't produced wholeness, that ultimately Jesus has come that we might have life and have it to the full. Not just when we die, but as you open yourself to all of who Jesus is, eternal life starts now. Isn't that good news? So I encourage you, keep thinking. That we, we, and by the way, we love questions. The, the, the connection cards that we have on the tables and online, if you ever have questions, we always... Um, uh, we, we do a, a, day, a, a weekly podcast where we talk about the stuff we haven't had a chance to talk about on Sunday morning and we would love it. If you've got any questions that are real for you, we'd love you to be feeding them in. And I, I have it also on good authority that we've got the, our young people taking over a church service in the not-too-distant future uh, and some of the questions they've had the courage to ask are going to be a little curly. Uh, uh, so you can be looking forward to that. And those of us who will be in the panel answering those questions uh, will be also processing that. But let's, let's just pray. Jesus, uh, thank you that you came to bring us life. Save us from a self-centred, fearful kind of faith. And Jesus, we now entrust into your hands all those we love who are no longer with us. We know you love them more than we do. And we don't fully understand how all this works there is a weight as we have this conversation. But thank you that ultimately we can trust you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.